0: this last pandemic year, we've more than doubled our revenue as a company mm-hmm. in part because I think people understand engaging um, is survival <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, to do it well, you need to do it thoughtfully um, and you need help probably thinking through these new relationship patterns that you haven't had to practice you know, in, inside of your company and with whoever your out, external stakeholders are.
1: Hi, and welcome to Greater Than. Here you'll listen to conversations with business leaders on how they build remarkable businesses, putting values to work for their organization and their customers. I'm Lauren Sinreich, assistance thinker and design strategist, principal of Whole Innovation and Design, and host of this podcast. In today's episode, I talked to Jennifer Brandel. After innovating the process of a Chicago-based newsroom as a journalist, Jen co-founded Harken to develop a people-powered process and technology that enables our organizations to better engage and collaborate with their stakeholders. For her work in journalism and entrepreneurship, Jen won the prize for best bootstrap company at South by Southwest and won the News Media Alliance Accelerator Prize. She received the Media Changemaker Prize by the Center for Collaborative Journalism, was named one of 30 world-changing women in conscious Business, is a Columbia Salzberger Fellow, an RSA Fellow, and a member of the Guild of Future Architects in the National Civic Collaboratory. She is also a co-founder of the concept of the Zebra Organization and the Zebras Unite Network. We talk about building Harkin, why the zebra business approach is the antidote to all that is wrong with a unicorn, why process is much more critical than the product you use, and so much more. I really loved learning more about Jen's entrepreneurship and leadership in her work, and I'm sure you will too.
0: Yeah, the kind of philosophical underpinnings of Harkin were a collection of observations, you know, over over my short (laughs) lifetime, you know, in 20s and 30s. Um, But really the most salient kind of influence on this idea that underpins Harkin of of the public as partners, not as consumers, came from working with the Baha'i faith. I worked for them in the early aughts for a few years. I'm not a Baha'i myself, but I really respect and um, appreciate a lot of the tenets of their faith. And I was charged with um, learning about how they do things in the world and community building and translating it for a public audience. And through that process, I learned that they approached community building and creating an impact on the world in a much different way than most institutions and quote unquote experts, You know, whether that's religions or uh, you know, authorities of any kind, governments, et cetera, where instead of going into a community and saying, hey, we know what's best for you. Uh, let us teach you how, let us tell you how. They instead said, you know your problems best, how can I help? And just Mm -hmm. left it at that. And so when I was thinking about how could that change other industries, it's kind of like, well, that would be a game changer for every industry. And my background was in journalism um, to some degree. I didn't study it, but I was working as a freelance journalist at the time and thought how powerful would it be if newsrooms, instead of saying we know what's best for you. Let us tell you what's important. The public was able to tell the newsroom what was important to them. And then the reporters were able to dedicate their time and resources to getting them the answers they needed to make decisions as citizens. So um, as Harkin has grown, we've seen the same problem set of institutions and their stakeholders being too far apart from one another to really be effectively serving each other, um, and creating the change they want to see in the world. So we've Mm. expanded to not just serve newsrooms, but also universities and, uh, nonprofits and governments, et cetera. It's it's the same problem set, but we remain uh, very active in journalism for trying to change the model as well.
1: What were the results you saw when you started having a more inclusive kind of process of listening to whether it's stakeholders or constituents for in a In a city, you know, in the newsroom, what were the the results when you started incorporating that process a little bit more?
0: There were so many positive outcomes, like really nothing negative other than, uh, people needing to change, which is hard. You know, all of us (laughs) have a hard time changing unless we're forced to, or, um, you know we're sufficiently motivated, but um, we found that journalists were totally surprised at the quality of the questions people were asking, um, things they would have never thought to report on that ended up becoming the top stories of the day, of the month, of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the things people were curious about, you know, they weren't asking for cat videos and crap like <laughs> like so many newsrooms had assumed if they let the public into the editorial process, it would result in less quality of a product people had tremendous questions that that newsrooms never would have thought of so first of all the the quality of the content was terrific secondly the originality was i mean it was <laughs> was differentiated from all other news outlets because instead of chasing the same stories in the same echo chamber and seeing what was popping and then reporting on that which creates you know this this uh, downstream effect of everything being the same um, The newsroom had so many original pieces of reporting, which is why a lot of people pay for news. And we found that too, is that people who felt involved in the process or who appreciated this process were more likely to give to the newsroom, whether that's as a member or donor or subscriber. Um, They were more loyal. They were giving free marketing to the newsroom, Um, especially the people participating in the story saying, oh my gosh, you know, this newsroom's listening to me. Check out the story that I'm part of and in. Yeah. um, that was huge. And then the public, you know, was able to make change faster than they could have, um, going through the routes of like petitioning and protesting and calling to light injustice because wow. suddenly an organization with a megaphone was able to investigate why something was the way it was, which helped people see that it could change and what those levers of change were. So those were just a few of the benefits, but, um, you know, it, it really, I think helps journalism, um, be better at what it's supposed to do <laughs> um, right. when you give people the power to uh, direct what information they need to do their job as citizens. You know, just by tweaking the process of how news stories got made, we ended up creating a real different sounding and different, um, differently consequential kind of journalism, and other newsrooms were starting to ask us about it. And finally, it got to the point where I, I knew I would regret not trying To see if I could make it work at a larger scale. Not that I wanted to start a business. I've never wanted to start a business. Never wanted to be a CEO. Never, uh, you know, had those intentions for myself. It was more of a, I will regret not trying to. Um, help others make this work because I do think it is a universal, um, a universally applicable process that uh, I think makes makes the world a little bit better. So Harkin was born out of that, and we're now approaching our five year anniversary, um, which is exciting. And yeah, since that time, we've um, you know expanded from journalism to other uh, fields and industries, and our practices and our tech and whatnot. So, um, but the the foundational principles of what we do still remain very much intact.
1: And I can imagine also a lot of those benefits translate over pretty in a parallel, not the same application, but parallel in in the consulting work that you do as well, right? Like as for me in my work in consulting, I, I think about complexity a lot in systems, right? And Um, one of the clear things for me is that we just don't have very effective feedback loops. You know, even our metrics are very closed-minded, not open. Like we're, you know, we're not really aware of what the metrics and the things that we're looking for are actually driving us, whether they're driving us in the direction we want to or not until far down, like far down the line. Um, And so closing these feedback loops is, is actually a really generative productive thing that it sounds like that's, that's a lot of what Harkin has been doing
0: hundred percent. No, we're all about feedback loops and, and creating resolution, you know, not, not just saying, Hey, become a, like, there's this great essay by this guy, Jonathan Harris called the healers and dealers. Mm-hmm. And there's different systems that are, that are dealers where they want you to keep coming back for more and more and more. And they leave you unresolved, you know, and addicted to systems, which we could look at social media and so many other things as being these dealer systems where you are the product. Um, right. and, The healer system is one in which there is a feedback loop where there is a response and there is a need that's been met. And I feel like journalism has been, you know, because of so many factors, but in part because of digital metrics that came out and suddenly newsrooms could see exactly how much people were spending time on their site, what they were doing and clicking. And they started to optimize for these kind of metrics that weren't really uh, 100% aligned with the mission of the organization and things got out of hand. Um, in a competitive way that, that they can when you have new information. And so uh, I feel like what we're, what we're trying to do is really maintain the mission and the money follows if you center the public is what we found. But the operations and the way that the kind of operating system of newsrooms have been set up is completely counter to this. So the work of doing this change, while it might sound so simple on the surface, which is create an opportunity for people to give feedback um, Get back to them and uh, do it consistently is surprisingly more challenging um, because of the way that they're optimized for speed, efficiency, and distribution, not for listening, relevance, and trust. So, there's a lot of changes that have to happen inside of an organization on a first on a ma- mental paradigm level, and then on a workflow, and then tooling and sched- schedule, and you know, uh, business level. It's really kind of massive. This tiny little idea <laughs> ends up changing a lot.
1: Hmm. I uh, so Harkin, you run the prize for best bootstrap company at South by Southwest, right? Yep. Can you talk a little bit more about how you built Harkin and uh, you know, what went into that, that recognition really. So it's what made Harkin unique in that way. Yeah.
0: What's so interesting is that when they called us but. Best bootstrap. I was like, but we have raised some money. It's, I mean, it was hardly anything comparatively. uh, But in their mind, we were bootstrapped (laughs) because we had raised, you know, less than a million dollars, and uh, you know that was not the norm for for startups in that time period. But you know, I I went through uh, a startup accelerator in San Francisco called Matter, um, which is no longer active, uh, but was really focused on the media space. And from there, um, I really ran into the tension of what seemed like the Silicon Valley pattern recognition slash value st- system and what I was trying to do. And it just felt inherently impossible <laughs> to build the kind mm. of company I wanted to in that, um, with that value system in place in that structure, it felt like, wait, if I want to build a company that lasts for a long time that has these incentives and structures, why am I uh, focusing all my time on making a small group of people very wealthy who, um, aren't my stakeholders on this, you know, who aren't, who aren't actually who I'm trying to serve with this work. And so I was always kind of pushing back against the like 10 X unicorn model. Um, but I didn't have the language for what I wanted to be instead. I just felt on a gut level that it was like not aligned. And so Harkin, um, you know, we've really tried to preserve optionality and how we've grown with the types of funding we've pursued. So we've done everything from, uh, you know, angel investors to, Getting uh, fiscally sponsored grants from foundations to running initiatives that are again like private or um, foundation funding, and then obviously revenue <laughs> customers—that's our number one—is mm-hmm. is making money from the people that we're providing a service for. So,
1: so you were you were a, a private for-profit organization, but you use kind of creative means to open up access to other things. Is that what I'm hearing you said? Fiscally yeah, sponsored so. You're not exactly. actually like a dual, yeah, okay.
0: We're not. We've been considering it. It's just the legal costs of setting all these things up and separating mm-hmm. accounting and all of that. But um, essentially, since our ownership is such that I remain in control of the decisions of the company, we can we can really operate as a mission-based startup, even though we're a Delaware C-Corp um, for the time being. It would change if I didn't have ownership um, on that level. So uh, we do. We are a 501c3 or no sorry we are we are a Delaware C corporation but operate on some levels with some of what we do like a nonprofit and have qualified for a lot of foundation funding
1: interesting yeah okay i don't think many many companies realize that that's available to them but it isn't i mean it clearly depends on what your your focus is and what you work on and that we yeah. make those partnerships and Resources available to you, yeah. Uh, so you know, it sounds like yes, you did take some funding, but you were very select- selective in who you took funding from, and you know what were the criteria around it. Um, no doubt in building this to and building Harken to co- into a company that feels like it's aligned with the values of what you wanted to be putting out to the world. Uh, what were some of the the harder decisions and trade offs that you had to make? You know, looking back on that time, or if you feel like it was still relatively close, um, like what what are some of those trade offs that you really felt like, you know, you had to think through, and what was the thought process that helped you get through it?
0: Yeah, I think some of the, I mean, some of the big trade offs at the beginning were people seemed to really respond to the Harkin pitch when we were going through the accelerator program and talking to Silicon Valley type investors. Uh, except for one slide. It was our market slide. And every time, um, you know, we got to that slide, someone quote, I'll just quote someone in the program said, it's like the air gets sucked out of the room because we didn't do this <laughs> hockey stick kind of slide that said, you know, our company uh, can capture 0.5% of a $30 trillion market and blah, blah, blah. To me, that was just vapor. It was like, come on, who believes this? This is It's a fiction to get... Um, People really excited about the opportunity, but I feel like you're setting yourself up for a lot of pressure to try and deliver on that promise of that slide. And it just felt kind of utterly absurd to me to, to put something like that in there. Um, and so we ended up you know, having tons of conversations with people who were just like, change that market slide, just change it and do the thing. You'll get a ton of investment on that front. And I just never felt comfortable. It felt like I was putting a lie in there to try and seal a deal. Mm-hmm. And then I was making... Um, I was compromising at the very start the foundation of what we were building and why. And then it, it would change who was attracted to working with us. And it, it felt disingenuous mm-hmm. ultimately. And so that was a tension of just like saying no (laughs) to making that um, change that felt like that's what everyone did to get the money. And it was kind of a wink, wink, you know, you got to put that slide in there. I used to call it like the boner slide uh, because (laughs) it would be like, you know, the up and to the right projections. And it would be the thing that like got them all excited. And I was like, this is not not my style. So, um, that was a tension that was hard. And then just the trade-offs along the way of, um, you know, trying to find a line financing and again, hearing people saying, oh, we'd invest in you if you only tweaked it this way or that way, knowing that that would actually compromise our values. So, um, yeah, that's been, you know, it's hard to walk away from money, but we really have figured out that who you get the money from and what it's designed to do is so important, and it's better to say no um, if you if you have that option.
1: Yeah, you know, you were able to hold true to the feeling that this would be a completely different company if you had to have that model, right? And so, yeah. uh, I imagine you um, you've heard of the the long term stock exchange initiative yes. that's being built and. Yeah, um, which will certainly make things a lot different for people. Um, I have to say, like, you know, listening to what's happening in the market and the conversations of, you know, the companies that perform the best are the ones that are like least risk are the ones that perform over the years. And so there's a lot more evidence and conversation and narrative in the mainstream happening right now that support this. But for a long time, that was like crazy speak almost, really. Right. You really had to be like strong and what you felt and understood.
0: Yeah, it was a real gold rush mentality. And I think folks, you know, glommed on to one or two narratives of of how you could strike it big. And then that just became everything that people were chasing. And they forgot the fact that like, our country and so many other economies are built built on these more steward owned models in which, you know, their family companies or their generational companies, and they are growing just, you know, incrementally over time, there's some bad years. Uh, and there are some decent years. But you know, when you look at the the charts over time, they trend upward. But it's not at some sort of like mutant pace.
1: So this is kind of like the beginning of your your formulation of the idea of a zebra company, right? Yep. Um, yeah. It's you and the the uh, three other women that you you formulated the the idea of the zebra with. with? Yes, is that correct? we
0: we call ourselves uh, the dazzle doulas just because we like alliteration and a group of zebras is called a dazzle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. Uh, so. Do you want to talk through a little bit about what a zebra is?
0: Yeah. I mean, essentially, zebras as a concept grew out of, you know, initially a dissatisfaction with the with the unicorn model and the value system that it was built upon. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had written a post uh, – I I come from a journalism background and so does one of the other founders, Mata Zepeda. And, you know, we just decided and as we were joking about kind of the masculine nature of unicorn startups with, you know, seed funding up into the right exits being all about liquidity. I mean, there's just a lot of puns to be made there about the male anatomy and, you know, kind of the chances of a... Of a company succeeding being like the chances of one sperm, you know, fertilizing an egg. It's like you have a lot of misses to, to have that one. And so we we just kind of wrote a cheeky piece at first that was more or less, um, you know, a, a cheeky takedown of, of what we thought was wrong with that model. But we didn't have an answer to replace it. And so we spent the next year really thinking about, okay, so if not that, then what? And we really just came down to values. What are what are the values that the unicorn system is built upon and making those explicit and then saying, okay, which of those don't we agree with? And so we ended up creating a chart that was just a really good shorthand, and I'll you know read off a few of these. But in terms of like, you know, starting with the why. Why do you exist? You know, the purpose of a unicorn is really exponential growth. To have some sort of liquidity event and to have a monopoly on a market or close to you know whatever whatever you can do to dominate a market and not get taken down and then a zebra instead the why is really just about sustainable prosperity it's not about going to the moon Um, you know might be to be profitable sustainable doubling your revenue every couple years and it's about a plurality you know creating the opportunity for multiple people to work in in a space And we see that, like, cooperation instead of competition is, we think, the way of the 21st century and beyond, and that it's about, like, shared resources, not hoarded, and it's about participation, not asserting yourself, and um, it's really just about being comfortable with enough instead of always more, 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 more. And the beneficiaries for a zebra are the public or the communities or the stakeholders you're serving rather than private shareholders or individuals. And so on that note, what we found and what was so interesting when we put out this first post about zebras and, um, you know, folks started to write to us and (laughs) by the thousands saying, this is the kind of company I'm building. Thank you for articulating this. Um, I I really vibe on this is that we found so many of these companies were doing paradigm shifting process work. And it wasn't, you know, they might have had a product involved, might be tech, you know, there might be a SaaS, you know, component to what they're doing. But at the end of the day, they were doing process work and change and systems change. And that wasn't fundable by foundations necessarily or by traditional tech investors. So they were finding themselves in this kind of valley of death of financing, which um, is something we're still trying to address of like, Who will write the $250,000 checks? It's like, you either got to raise $8 million or, uh, you know, try and go to a bank and get $50,000 for (laughs) the price of all the laptops in your company because those are the only assets you really have. So um, we're still trying to solve for that gap for these kinds of companies that are doing longer term change work that is, um, at the end of the day, about, about process and process adoption versus just product adoption.
1: It's interesting because you say that uh, that you say that because Harkin has effectively productized that work, right? You were <laughs> able to productize that system and process change yep. that was effective for the news and journalism um, space, right? Yeah, uh, but it's not always so easy to productize productize that work. You don't see how to how to do that.
0: <laughs> no, it's it's super difficult. And I would say even at this point, we're not at the self serve tech model where you just go to a site and sign up Mm. and then suddenly you have the tech, there's still a lot of mindset work shift that has to happen with, with deploying our model successfully. So we are a hybrid really consultancy and tech company. Um, in some years, uh, one portfolio is much larger than the other and it kind of bounces back and forth, but we're kind of developing at the speed of the market. You know, the whole idea of audience or stakeholder engagement and listening and feedback loops is I think much more, uh, on everyone's mind than it was five years ago. When we started, we were trying to convince people why they should listen to the people they serve and why they should take the time. Now they know they need to do it, but still, um, you know, there's a lot of work that's involved on the operational level on convincing leadership on showing how that, um, you know, hits their bottom line in a positive way to do this kind
1: of work. So we're not, we're not a pure tech company. Do you actually aim to one day hopefully be purely a tech product?
0: Not necessarily. I think we it would be great if the market was mature enough where we could have a standalone tech product that people could just stand up mm-hmm. and, and use effectively. What we see now is that um, you know engagement is a business model, and it hasn't been recognized as one quite yet, and it'll probably be years before it is. So I just don't think um, our tech will ever be used as deeply and effectively as it could be if consulting didn't come as part of it. And it's also just, I mean, we are human centered and, and, and relational. And so having the consulting piece of it is also really important um, just from, from that perspective of listening and learning and constantly being able to um, keep a pulse on what people are thinking and what they need. So I agree. Like, I don't think the consulting is going to go away. Um, I just hope it becomes quicker and easier <laughs> to, um, to have that recurring revenue on the tech side. Cause that eases burden on, you know, doing more emergent things or doing R&D and, and trying new things out. So we do find, too, and are thinking more about consulting as recurring revenue, because we do have partners that stay with us on the consulting front for a long time. So on the balance sheet, it looks like tech, but it's humans. And so the margins aren't as as large as tech.
1: Do you find that that's with companies that just don't have the resources to do that in house and they're basically outsourcing it to you? Or is it like new interesting things that you are exploring with them that they want your support on?
0: It can be a combination of both. I mean, we don't uh, do it for them. It's more that we teach them kind of how to fish in this way. So, yeah, you know, we've thought okay. about do we do engagement for that organization and just were their engagement people, but that means we can't serve as many folks and we can't teach them the ways that we think are ultimately going to safeguard their business sustainability. Um, and so we're not there to uh, just take that function because we don't think it's going to serve them longer term. We want to uh, create that capability within the
1: people who work there in that culture. Hmm. I think a lot of the work that is being done in many industries and sectors is a lot about, okay, these processes, these these paradigms in which we approach how we build things are kind of not as relevant or not as effective as they were before. And we're seeing that happen a lot. How, how have you handled that and approached that in, in building Harkin?
0: Well, there's kind of, I feel like two systems simultaneously always going. There are things in a process of destruction or disintegration. And then there are things that are in a process of like building and cultivation. And I see those things happening in parallel. And so in part, we are trying to uh, slow down the disintegration of the news industry by giving them these different ways of kind of rebuilding themselves from the inside out but the rate of those things happening is very different depending on the market, the leadership, uh, you know, the, the timing, the audience, et cetera, the, the broader context that they operate in. But at the same time, I feel like what we're doing is we're building up a case for what would a newsroom from scratch look like, you know, and I'm, I, I want to put newsroom in air quotes because I think it's public storytelling entity, you know it doesn't have to just be quote unquote what's happening right now or about to happen or just happened. But I look at news as more expansive as to like, what are people interested in? What information do they need to solve the problems that they have um, short term and long-term wherever they may be, you know? And so I, I feel like what we're doing is we're kind of training. um, I don't want to use military terms here, but like, you know, an army of new thinkers Um, to try and build up whatever is going to replace the traditional system. And not to say we have all the answers to this new way of doing things, but we've definitely tested and proven a lot of it. And it all comes down to human nature. It's it's not something that's going to change. People are always going to be curious. They're always going to have questions. They're always going to need um, other people to help fact check and understand the complexity of any situation and make it um, digestible and easy to understand what to do. So like those things are, are never going to change. Um, and I feel positive about any system that's built on kind of human nature fundamentals, but designed for the most productive version of ourselves versus the most <laughs> destructive tendencies that we have. And, and that's what I feel like we have with our public power process in tech.
1: Yeah. I mean, for Harkin, it's, it's, you have, you're a moderator effectively, right? You are this in between where you're, you are listening and you're um, getting the information. It's not as open as like social media where it's just a free for all, right? Like, what does that look like? What does that look like um, in a, in a more open platform? Yeah. I mean, I think it's all about
0: discerning Um, what are the dynamics that make for the best outcomes for everybody? Um, And and it's a balance. There's a tension sometimes, you know, between the quote unquote audience or the newsroom, but ours is a one-to-many model um, on a couple different levels where the institution is the one that is taking in inputs from the many, but Mm -hmm. then uh, working with that individual, that one who asked a question and creating content then for the many as well. So Mm -hmm. there's kind of this, um, there's this step of, where things go into the system and they're not necessarily public in a free for all, which can create a lot of distraction and a lot of, uh, you know, it can create good things too, but ultimately newsrooms aren't set up <laughs> to be uh, moderators of that free for all, which is why we've seen commenting sections go away uh, for a large part or just be completely toxic. Um, right. they're, not, they're not set up to deal with that amount of chaos um, and input. And so um, that's how we've designed the system to be able to have these checks and balances, but to have different moments of feedback loops at every major decision-making process. So Mm -hmm. it's not a completely open system that would really be chaotic and not productive. Um, So there, there are these like gates. And then we also have another software um, called switchboard community management system. That's a many to many model where it's a mutual aid network where people can, um, you know, connect and say, Hey, I'm looking for an internship or I need X, Y, and Z thing. You know, there's lots of different communities that set them up. And that allows people to be directly in touch with each other without the intermedi- intermediary of the institution. So mm. there's different network design um, built for different purposes. And I think it's really thinking through what's going to be the most productive and yield the most positive responses <laughs> you know, right. uh, for everybody.
1: And it seems like Switchboard and Harkin both can be very intentional in the way that it facilitates or holds space for a certain kind of listening or response set, right? Or engagement um, dynamic. Uh, I wonder, does for companies that use social to listen, you know, mm-hmm. for the companies that are starting to listen and seeing the value in listening um, to like mainstream social platforms, do you think that they can be effective in that same way? I mean, I don't
0: think... I haven't seen it yet. Not to say that it's not possible. I know Facebook has and Twitter and other places have like changed their prompts over the year to like, what's on your mind to just like an empty box to uh, you know, like ways of trying to direct people's energy. And I think so much of it is in the design of what is the engagement? What do people understand is the role of this thing to do. And um, you know, Facebook and Twitter are, are both used for so many different Needs and approaches, um, which is great in a lot of ways. You just learn a lot about what what happens when you give people forums to uh, exchange. You know, what do they what do they want? Do they want to transact? Do they want to share, um, you know, their lives with each other? Do they want to uh, just you know support justice causes? Like, what are they doing there? Um, where ours is very specific to what the outcome in, which is get a need met, mm. not just um, sound off or have a space to you know, to be heard potentially. Um it, it is about the resolution part of it, which neither of those platforms necessarily are, although, you know, there's Facebook marketplace and these other sorts of things where there is supposed to be a transaction. Um, but we're looking at more of a relational model in which uh, the <laughs> the possibilities are expanded um, for people's lives and what what can happen versus just um you know a product or service is exchanged.
1: Mm. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about how Harkin really is built built on the idea of engagement as a business model, but it's really not embraced or acknowledged broadly that that is a possibility. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, it's so many
0: different organizations have, you know, come to a pattern that's worked for them for a long time as to how they, how they survive and make money. I think over the last few years uh, as different of those patterns have been disrupted. The name of the game has been diversify your portfolio. You know, so uh, have an event strategy, have a paid merchandise strategy, have a advertising sponsorship strategy. Like you know, really don't rely on one because uh, just the global systems we're in and the speed of change and technology threaten to take you down if you only have one one way of of being. Um, where, pandemic whereas...
1: example, pandemic, uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, and it's been wild in, in this last pandemic year, we've more than doubled our revenue as a company mm-hmm. in part, because I think people understand engaging, um, is survival and, mm-hmm. you know, to do it well, you need to do it thoughtfully. Um, and you need help probably thinking through these new, relationship patterns that you haven't had to practice, you know, in inside of your company and with whoever your out, external stakeholders are. So on the engagement front, I mean, we clearly see, and, and so many, you know, sectors know this already, like organizing, you know, and community building that if people are involved in what you're doing, they're much more likely to pay for supporting that thing to exist.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it's, it's really like so dumb this idea of just like, the more people are involved, the more they get to see their voices mattering and shaping things and the change they want to see happening, the more likely they are to support you and trust you as well. That's a big part. Um, and the thing is news organizations and just the infrastructure, like the plumbing in so many institutions right now, beyond news don't have, um, you know, the, this like connective tissue to see how the editorial inputs or ideas inputs are connecting to the marketing and the CRM of who the customer is. And they are like for our partners who are sophisticated on that front, um, can see the data flowing um, and also have someone there who's paying attention because like mm-hmm. all of these great things can happen, but if no one's paying attention, you might not see that like, oh my God, we have we have gold here. Like there's something growing. Um, that we didn't realize. And so part of it is like the staffing. Do you have a data analyst and business insights person who's like connecting these dots and seeing what's working? Um, but, you know, fundamentally it's the, the plumbing. Are things talking to each other? Can you start to surface those insights? Right. Which is why we're, we're focused on doing a lot of tech integration. So our data can flow into whatever systems homemade or third party that institutions are using to track um, engagement in a variety of different ways.
1: Yeah, and I think for for tech, you know, it's interesting because um, a lot of times there's the focus on the product, but it's really about how do you work around those products and connect them, and what do you do with it. And I think you've mentioned something about that before. It's it's not the tech, it's not the product, it's the process. It's process, yeah. yeah,
0: process first. I mean, it's like people first going into a process and then the product is the final layer, but it's easy for people to start with product because it's like tangible. And mm-hmm. it's something you want to see and play with and be like, how am I going to use this? It's just immediate in a different way, where process is more abstract, requires more mental bandwidth, which like nobody has right now, <laughs> you know, in their, in their professional or personal lives, just given all the change that's happening. So, um, so that that's that's part of it is convincing people that the process innovation which is hard to wrap your head around is is so much more important than what products you're using.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's also partly why people it, it's like the things that has the potential for the most return and impact but it's the mm-hmm. thing that also takes the most thinking because that's not where we focused or where our muscle is strongest. Um from building over the last 20 years, just focusing primarily on product, right? So. Yeah,
0: and there's there's it's rare that an organization has people whose 100% of their job is focused on process. It's like 20 people, like part of 20 people's jobs and getting them all at meetings and to the table and to co-design or to create and agree upon something new um, is not for babies. <laughs> it's hard. No, no,
1: I, I don't I know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as we're wrapping our conversation, I'd love to hear what, what, um, resources, books, podcasts, articles, do you recommend that people, that people read or would be beneficial to think more about engagement as a business model or thinking about thinking about, uh, process or even like, you know, business models in general, thinking about the zebra company that, that can kind of inform them and, and, and moving towards a business model that's ready for the future.
0: Wow, <laughs> oh, great question. Um, So, some of the thinkers I go to, one is Eric Liu, L I U, and he wrote a book called You're More Powerful Than You Think, and it's a Mm -hmm. citizen's guide to making change. So, you know, I've been really obsessed recently with just uh, exploring power and trying to see the different patterns that it takes, and, uh, you know, trying to, I guess, splash ink on the invisible architecture of like how different power structures run. To better understand where the leverage points and weaknesses are and where the opportunities are to generate new power. Um, So his book uh, is one I continually come back to. Um, In terms of journalism, uh, Andrea Wenzel, uh, a professor at Temple, just came out with a book called Community-Centered Journalism. um, And that is one that I also believe is just terrific at at talking about putting, putting people at the center of the process and not just having them be the recipients of whatever it is you make. And then you being mad when they don't pay you (laughs) for what you're making. Um, And design justice, uh, the design justice network is really incredible for designing for the most marginalized people Mm -hmm. in any group, because if you uh, can solve for their problems, you can solve for almost everyone's problems. Um, And then uh, zebras unite. We we just have, if you go to zebrasunite.coop, C-O-O-P, um, there's just a wealth of resources that a lot of different people in the community are contributing to. So whether that's how to build a business that's built to exit to the community instead of to shareholders, um, whether it's learning about different um, ways of setting up hybrid structures so that you can meet profit and purpose for whatever investors you have. Um, those are just a
1: few, a few spots I would recommend. Those are great suggestions. Thank you. I mean, there's so much more there to dig into like getting yes. you know, to community and I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for making time to, uh, to chat today. It was good to, to catch up with you again. Thanks for listening to greater than show notes are available on the podcast page on our website. We that's we are E.co. If you enjoyed this conversation, leave a review where you stream your podcast and share it with others who might like it too.